Digital Dust is a history podcast about the stuff you learned in school with a perspective you might not have considered. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Digital Dust. I'm Katie. I'm Liz. I'm Robin. And I am Patrick. Oh, my God. (laughs) And it's episode five. It is episode five. Yeah. Okay. It's episode five. We made it. The big five. Uh, today we're we're letting me be a nerd for as however long this is maybe like sixty minutes. I'm gonna geek out, and we're gonna talk about the Iliad. So we're gonna look at kind of two things, and I'll kind of give you the structure of this podcast right now, so you like know what to expect. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. So episode five is actually coming to you in two parts. So it's basically episode five and episode six. (laughs) Whoops. And that's really because I am the world's biggest nerd about the Iliad and I have talked for far too long about it and you don't need to hear it all at once. Today, part one, we're going to actually talk about the Iliad. We're going to talk about what it is, what it tells us. I'll give you a summary, don't worry, in case you never read it. We're also going to talk about who Homer is. We're going to talk about how we know what we know about the ancient past and how historians construct the ancient past. And then, as a little teaser for next episode, we're going to be talking about all things retellings. I'm going to write some retellings. I'm going to talk about Brad Pitt's hair. I'm also going to talk about Orlando Bloom. It's going to be a good time. But before we can get to that, we do need to know a little bit more about the actual text. So, shall we jump in? We're going to start with talking about the Iliad and what we know about it. I'm going to give you guys a summary because, you know, that's pretty important. And I also want to tell you about how we know what we know about the Iliad. Because we've talked about this in our teaching class a lot. A lot of people don't really know that history is constructed. And I think a great example for how history is constructed is looking at the ancient past and how we know anything about the past that's so far removed from us. Then we're going to have a little fun. We're going to talk about Brad Pitt. We're going to talk about some other people too, I guess. And we're going to look at five different retellings of the Iliad. Ooh. I'm going to rate them because, you know, that's who I am. Love that. Um, and then we're going to talk about what they change, what they keep the same, and what that means about us as modern readers or viewers of this ancient story. So I want to also start. This is. By the way, this is a great view of what the podcast is going to be. It's going to be a monologue with just some interspersing. I'm going to try and make it make it more interesting and get you guys engaged. But I want to start by saying that I'm not a classics major. I don't speak ancient Greek. I don't even speak modern Greek. Wait, I'm wait a minute. Why are you even doing this? Wait, oh wait, wait. <laughs> get hold out. up, hold up. <laughs> my, my avenue into this is through art. So I am going to give a lot of art references. I'll probably put some up on our social media so you can know what we're talking about but I'm going to tell you about different art bits that we'll look at and kind of like how we know this through art and then also just content warnings going into this we're talking about the Trojan War so we're going to be talking about war we're going to be talking about murder and we're going to be talking about rape not um, in depth by any measure but it is part and parcel with specifically the feminist takes on the Iliad so I'm really excited about this, but I wanted to start by extending (laughs) the mic over to you guys. And I want to know what you know about the Iliad, about maybe the Odyssey, if you know anything about the Odyssey, or just about ancient Greece in general. Oh, man. I don't know much. Um, My sister was really into, like, the Percy Jackson books as a kid. Oh, yeah. 
So like I wasn't Classic. I was more into the um the you know those like they had those diaries that were like from different princesses throughout history. So like Cleopatra, Anastasia, all those. I read those and those were those were my jam. So yeah, I never I was never like a Greek mythology kid. Mm-hmm. So I don't know a whole lot. From the Iliad, I know I I don't even know much about the Iliad, but um I know that it's about the Trojan War. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's the face that launched a thousand ships. Yeah. Um, Brad Pitt, Orlando Bloom, of course. <laughs> Chef's <Correct>. um, <laughs> And then I don't think I know anything about the Odyssey. It's they're definitely two classics that like I should have read. I read the hmm. Theban plays in like second year. Okay. Um, so mm. yeah, we did like um, um, what is it? Uh, blah blah blah. The guy stabs the uh, Oedipus Rex. We read mm. Oedipus Rex. I remember that. And it was like, this is horrible. It's so sad. It's just like lame. I don't yeah. know. So mm-hmm. that's um, that's my perception of ancient Greece. And Katie, maybe you'll mm-hmm. maybe you'll pique more of an interest in it for me. But for now, I'm maybe. just kind of like, mm. yeah. Oh, man. That's Robin? good. I like that. Oh, yeah. No, I don't have much of uh, experience with Homer. I did buy the book. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just sitting on my shelf there you go and uh i haven't touched it yet but i do love greek mythology i used to know a lot about gods and um and the myths and the legends i i used to be able to identify different gods by just looking at pictures of them because you know um much like saints if there's like some sort of item with them you're like oh that's the you found you athena (laughs) found you but yeah not much i'm excited to learn more and also i do know about the trojan horse that thing's fun there's a lot of good memes out there perhaps we'll find there some. are mm-hmm. all right patrick oh god um yeah i mean like i know a little bit about greece i suppose um hercules from the 90s was certainly my pathway into greek mythology 100 percent uh great movie uh yeah so and, and, and percy jackson of course um, I think it was probably the sort of ancient civilization that I was most interested in in high school. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I don't know much. I know most about their theater, probably, because I was in a theater program in, in high school. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Surprising. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I know a little bit about about Greek theater um, more okay. than more than any other part of it. Um, in terms of in terms of Homer, I know that the Odyssey is about someone going home. I know that it's it's the journey yes. home. That's what the Odyssey yes. is. And there's nice. some line in it. There's some line in it that I know for some reason, probably from some TV show that I watched at some point. But there's some line that I know about. Nothing is weaker than man, or something, or like nothing is bread that is weaker than man. I think. Yeah. Which sounds honestly, right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's I I but I know nothing about the Iliad. I honestly okay. know nothing about it. Okay. Cool. So we're gonna. Start by giving you the context around the Iliad, and then I'll actually tell you what happens in it. So the Iliad is an epic from the 8th century BCE, and it's written by a man called Homer. And then automatically I have to tell you that that might not be true. It is an epic. what? (laughs) (laughs) News to me. It is an epic. And most scholars agree that long before it was written down by someone called Homer, it was an oral tradition. So it was a story that got told by poets. And then the question of who Homer is, is a big scholarly debate. Uh, No one has ever known much about him. There's not a lot written about him. And he's attributed both the Iliad and then as Patrick mentioned, the Odyssey, which is about a return home. And he could have been one poet. He could have been two poets. He could have been two people who 
didn't know each other. He wasn't necessarily even a poet. All that we know is his name is attached to the Iliad and the Odyssey and that he didn't create these stories. He just recorded them. What a mystery. So now I know what a mystery. So maybe you guys can go like find it out and uh, email us. Uh, I can't remember what our email is, but shoot us an email when you figure out this mystery, please. Yeah, super sleuths. <laughs> super sleuths. All right, this brings us to our second question, which is, do you think the Iliad is a true story? I think parts of it is Achilles, right? Achilles yes. is, like, one of the main... Okay, so, like, obviously, I'm sure Achilles was a great warrior. I don't think he was dipped in the river sticks by his ankle. Okay, wait. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that happened. Come on. That Back happened. it up. Maybe he was dipped in it, but, like, I don't know if it really did anything to It was actually his elbow him. that and, was... <laughs> yeah, Achilles' <laughs> elbow. <laughs> um yeah so i I definitely think parts of it are true and i think it's like an interesting way to talk about the trojan wars and about conflict um yeah so i think like the people were real but i like some of the more mythical aspects of it i'm not you know obviously i'm not too sure but i'm sure you could do a really in-depth reading of like how those tropes came to be if they if they are real or not yeah robin or patrick I'm going to go with absolute fiction. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think like, like 80, 20. What do you think, Robin? Yeah, honestly, I, I thought we were going to have the same opinion here. Like there is probably some parts of it that's true, but I'm sure a lot of it was used maybe for propaganda, building a nation, mm. saying like we have great warriors. I don't know. Some sort of connection, not only to like what the nation's doing as building itself, but maybe even the religion and spirituality. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so the answer is basically what you guys said, kind of, maybe, who knows. So what we do know is that there are very in-depth, if you've read the Iliad, you'll know that there are just pages and pages of just like descriptions of a single ship and the way it functioned and what it looked like. And there are in-depth descriptions of a number of things. And we can tie things like place names, so different kingdoms of Greece, clothing descriptions, armor descriptions, and stuff descriptions to the Bronze Age. So we date it from the 17th to the 15th century BCE, and we find archaeological remains that look the same as the descriptions in the Iliad. And so that tells us that the story probably belongs in that kind of 200, 300-year period between the 17th century and the 15th century. And then in turn, we can now you know, use the Iliad to date things that look like things in the Iliad to that kind of Bronze Age. You might know this period as Mycenaean Greece because Mycenae was the most powerful city-state in the Bronze Age, but you might not know it. Some people will call it uh, Mycenaean Greece, in case you were wondering. <laughs> yeah. Troy, on the other hand. So, so when we look at Greece... I'm about to describe to my wall what Greece looks like. You can imagine what Greece looks like. (laughs) So all of the city-states that are referenced, or most, I guess there are some on the islands, most come from mainland Greece. And so we can pinpoint them. We've actually found like archaeological remains, including parts of cities in mainland Greece. And so that's where the so-called Greeks come from. We're going to call them the Greeks in this podcast because it's easier than calling them by each of their city-state names. But they definitely weren't like Greeks. They weren't like, ah, yes, I am Achilles and I am a Greek. Mm-hmm. He would not have thought that. He would have thought a lot of things, but not that. 
Like, don't Troy touch my on ankles. Other. Don't touch my ankles. <laughs> don't touch my ankles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his whole vibe is actually don't touch me, period. Oh, but yeah. here we go. Yeah. Troy, on the other hand, is a little more hard to pinpoint. It's probably in modern-day Turkey, so it was for a long time Persia. And over the years, archaeologists have found seven different sites that sit in this valley between two rivers. And from the Iliad, we know that Troy was supposed to sit between two rivers. And so people have always called this site Troy, and there have been seven different iterations of Troy. Most archaeologists, not all, think that Troy six which lasted from about 1700 to about 1250 BCE, is the candidate for a Trojan War. And I'm going to put that in quotations. And part of this is because parts of what we found of Troy VI match the descriptions. There's like these really tall walls. There's a citadel. And we also know that it fell around 1250 BCE from a combination of natural disasters, so things like earthquakes and some sort of foreign attack. Now, the thing is, we don't have any evidence that connects the Mycenaeans or any of the Greeks to the fall of Troy VI, but we do have evidence that connects them as maybe a trade relationship. So we do know that they were in contact, but we just don't have any if, big if, but if the Greeks were responsible for the fall of Troy VI, they did not stick around and they did not leave anything to tell us that. Simultaneously, so that falls... 1250 BCE, about 50 years later and 1200 BCE. And remember, when we do BCE, we go backwards, which always confuses people. <laughs> so, to, yeah, it's it's pretty rough, but you'll get used to it. So 1250, <laughs> then 50 years later and 1200, the Mycenaean kingdoms begin to collapse. So all of the city-states that are referenced in the Iliad just start disappearing. And there are tons of reasons for this. No scholar is certain, but some people say it's natural disaster. Some people say it's plague. Some people say it's unrest. Some people say it's drought. Aliens. Some people say it's aliens. That person is Patrick. (laughs) Uh, And the History Channel. (laughs) Yeah, the History Channel would definitely... Aliens. After 10 o'clock, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) After 10 p.m., the aliens come out (laughs) on the History Channel. (laughs) (laughs) But some ancient Greeks attributed the Trojan War, like the literal one from the Iliad, to the fall of the Mycenaeans. And they did this because the Odyssey, which we talked about, takes place about a decade after the Iliad, after the Trojan War is done. And Odysseus returns home to massive unrest. He finds his house and his lands plundered. And he finds that all of the men who came of age during the war that did not then go to the war didn't have anything to do. And so they just robbed a lot of people they started murdering a lot of people and they just did a lot of piracy you know as boys being boys you know as you do as you do do when you're bored yeah so some ancient greeks said yeah like there was a trojan war and it is the reason that the mycenaean kingdoms fell some more modern historians would say "Mm, we don't think that anymore but there might have been a trojan war and it might have involved the greeks We don't have enough evidence to say concretely for or against. So we've talked about this time period, the Bronze Age, right? And so it's like the 17th century to the 15th century. So then why is Homer writing in the 8th century? And that reason has to do with the fall of the Mycenaean kings. So from that fall in 1200 to about 750, so the 8th century, We call that the Greek Dark Ages. Now, if you lived in Greece 
in that point in time, you would not be like, this is the Greek Dark Ages. It's actually really sunny a lot of the time. It's really <laughs> sunny all the time. <laughs> um, but like, you know, you were just living your life. You were a peasant. You were illiterate. And you didn't <laughs> think anything of anything, right? Yeah. You thought about yourself and that's about it. No thoughts, head empty. <laughs> no thoughts, head completely empty. And so during the Greek Dark Ages, there was no literacy, right? It gets lost. In the Mycenaean, so like the pre-Dark Ages time, the Mycenaean people used a script called Linear B. Again, we've, we've named it Linear B. It's not really called Linear B. And that dies out. And we can, we can kind of imagine why that would be. Only the rich people know how to write at all at this period. And if there's any sort of plague that you know, breaks the connection in terms of teaching, like it's not that hard to lose literacy at this point in time. And they're very small city-states, right? They're not huge. They're not even like what we might imagine as like Athens or Sparta later on. This is Sparta. <laughs> we actually will talk. Is that... That's 300, 300. right? Yeah. That is 300, yeah. yeah. We, we'll, Good old we'll, Zack like, Snyder. <laughs> oh, it's Zack Snyder directed Zack Snyder 300? Directed 300, yeah. yeah. Wow. You can tell Six by all the, all the shots and the slow-mo. Yeah. That's how you can tell it's Zack Snyder. But it's actually based off of a graphic novel. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, which is totally Which tell. is really interesting, actually. Yeah. yeah. If you're into graphic novels and ancient Greece, it's, it's a very interesting... Um, very interesting kind of collision of different yeah. art forms and stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Watch 300. It's great. <laughs> it is that's, great. That's what you should it's take so away from good. that. It's gory, but it's great. It's, yeah. it's gory. <laughs> okay. So in 750, after the Dark Ages have suddenly miraculously ended, there's a new alphabet introduced based on the Phoenician alphabet. And one of the earliest records we have of this is a cup that we call Nestor's Cup, which is a cup surprise surprise and it has an inscription on it and the inscription in this new alphabet reads i am the cup of nestor good for drinking whoever drinks from this cup desire for beautifully crowned aphrodite will seize him instantly wow which a hilarious that's amazing yeah it it is supposed to be like a joke just just play it as it is i am a cup i'm very good at it i'm very good at being a cup i mean (laughs) flex The, the cup said that's how all marketing should be, you know, right, right to it. <laughs> <laughs> I am a cup good for drinking. <laughs> and the great part of this is that Nestor might refer to a king featured in the Iliad. He's not a major character, but there is a king called Nestor. And if it is him, which it could very well be, it also could just be the name of the potter who made it, that shows us just how important the Iliad was far before homer ever wrote it down right this is about the same time that the alphabet's being introduced there's no way homer's already written it down and it's already gone you know however far away this cup was made and so it's this idea that this oral tradition was actually around for centuries and we can see it in those like small details which i'm just so interested in so the Iliad is an oral tradition. It does change a little through the centuries. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But I have another question for you guys. Do you think that the Iliad is a standalone story? No. It was it's the a Odyssey. Collection, right? Oh, I understand. I, I get it. I agree with Robin. She sounded confident. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Too big. Nice. <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. So you're right, Robin. It's not a standalone story. It's part of what scholars call the epic cycle. And so we have all of the rest of the epic cycle is lost because most people actually don't include the Odyssey in the epic cycle. But it's, I think it's six parts. It's the Cypria. Wait. So it's not canon? It is. It's not canon. It's not canon. (laughs) It is canon. um, But it takes place. It depends on the scholar you ask, actually. Which is like, (laughs) that's going to be the tagline of this episode. It just depends on the scholar you ask. Oh, my God. Some people will be like, oh, yeah, the Odyssey, like, it's clearly about the Trojan War. But there are lots of stories about the Trojan War that aren't in the epic cycle. But the epic cycle is, I think it's six stories. I can't count. It's the Cypria, the Athiope, the Little Iliad. Then people put the Iliad, the Iliapersis, the Nostoi, and the Telogony. That's seven, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, did, did, did Homer write all seven of these? Great question. Okay. No, he's not attributed the rest cool. of the epic cycle. No, and so that's why some people don't put the Odyssey in it. They're like, ah, oh, Homer was just doing his own thing. He doesn't count. <laughs> um, Oh, so they were also boy. oral tradition. Um, my question is, what defines an epic? I don't really know Ooh. a lot about. That's a epics. good question. That's a really good question. How, yeah, how does that like compare to other stories? Yeah, so to my knowledge, and I'm sorry if this is wrong to all the classics majors out there, um, an epic is a style of story. It's written in lines. So it's not like a, a book like we would read now. It's written like how we read poetry. And it's an epic is normally like pretty long. So, for example, the Iliad is 24 books, which is just chapters. I think today, if you were to pick up the Iliad, it's like 1,200, 1,300 pages, something like that. So it's they're pretty big. Yeah, they're they're not ginormous. I think the Little Iliad is the smallest at 11 books. And again, we don't actually have it. Yeah, it would make sense. We don't have it, but. I can tell you like kind of how we know this in just a minute. Um, But yeah, it's the structure. It's the fact that it's written in lines instead of um, regular. And then I think also the fact that it is an oral tradition first and foremost is what makes it an epic. And it's about a hero. You need a hero for an epic. Forgot that. Yeah. Um, Now the rest of the epic cycle, like I I could tell you what happens in each of the stories, um, but that's not super relevant I will come back to the main plot points that matter for the retellings in just a minute. But there is, so if these are lost, how do we even know their titles, let alone what happens in them? And there are two ways. So the first is my way, which is the art. We have tons of art that shows us things like the suicide of Ajax. So if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see that the suicide of Ajax is my cover page for this month bullet journal, which sounds depressing. I guess it kind of is. Um, He commits suicide in the Little Iliad. And um, so we have things like that. We have tons of depictions of the judgment of Paris. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we have tons of other things that show different parts of the story, the Trojan War, that don't actually fit into the Iliad. The other way we know it is through stories that are written by other poets that remain. So I think of something like Virgil's Aeneid, which is actually a Roman story, but involves Aeneas. Like, honestly, is there a word after tertiary? Like, Aeneas is so irrelevant in the Iliad, (laughs) but Rome was like, what if he was actually our founder? And then they wrote the the Aeneid. But, yeah, it, it was... 
I could go on a thing about it, the Iliad, I mean, the Aeneid, but I won't because that is not the point of this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so there's tons of other stories that feature the different aspects, like different characters, but not actually these seven stories. They're different parts of their lives or they're, you know, characters who don't really matter taken out of context and, and doing something that matters to that story. So because the Iliad is part of a larger narrative, and I think it's actually, if you count it as seven, I think it sits as the fourth, maybe it's the third, whatever. It falls like directly in the middle of this story. It starts and ends at the weirdest points. But before that, <laughs> I want you to try and name characters from the Iliad. I've given you some names. Here we go. And this can also include gods and goddesses. Okay. 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 Oh go boy. ahead. Um, Helen. Yes. Troy. I don't know. That is a place, but okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's a name. Paris. Paris. Yes. Achilles. Uh, Achilles. Mm-hmm. Zeus. Zeus. Yeah, he features. Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Ode- is it Odysseus in it? Odysseus. Odysseus yep, he is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any other? What's the name of the. There's the name of the king of Troy, who's like gross. What I forget his name. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> he's like gross he's gross King he's like gross. an old man who wants to steal Helen away or whatever what a creep a creep, he's a creep. Uh, any others other gods or goddesses you might know did someone say Ares do you think Ares would be no. Ares yeah he would be. isn't there God something isn't there something about the a temple of Apollo or something in Apollo it? yeah you're you're yeah. getting that right out of Troy and I love it yep Hephaestus oh in it. Hephaestus is uh, in it vaguely, but yes, I just feel like is. Aphrodite is tied to him, right? So. Yep, they're married. Yeah, she loves that. Mmm, she loves that. <laughs> I could just start naming gods if you want. You could start know. naming gods because most of the gods do feature. So okay. like oh, gods like Hera or I don't even know Athena. Athena did you mention that? No. Yeah. Um, most of the gods play like minor roles or major roles. We'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, Achilles, super important. Paris, super important. Hector, who is the general of the Trojans and the brother of Paris, is also quite important. Okay. I was so, trying to remember his name. I know, was like, I know Paris has a brother, but I forget yes, his name. So as a side note, um, Priam, who is the king, by the way, that's the name of the king, Priam. has 50 sons and 50 daughters in the story. Oh my God. Story. All, all born by the same woman. Whoa. Poor Hecuba. But like, but like, do we know her name? Because she's the real hero. Hecuba. Here. Hecuba. Okay. Hecuba. Yeah. Um, okay. So summary of the Iliad. Now I've tried to keep this as short as possible. Um, <laughs> Twelve hundred pages yeah. in twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Welcome to my thesis. No, I. It shouldn't be too long. So. You say that now. I say that now. <laughs> I've I've really tried to to condense this down and I'll, I'll reference other things that might be important like later um but the iliad starts nine years into the trojan war so it starts the trojan war is about a decade long it starts about nine years into it and agamemnon the general of the greeks so he's the king of mycenae which means that he is the person who's leading everyone has taken a war prize it's a human being her name is chryseis that's with a c chryseis it's going to become important. She's the daughter of a priest of Apollo. 
And her father, who's she's tro- she's Trojan as well. Obviously, she's a war prize, a human being. I have to do that every time. So her father comes into the Greek camps and he brings a ransom for her. And Agamemnon says, no, because he's a dog face. My favorite insult that comes up in the Iliad. And so as a priest of Apollo, the priest is like, hey, Apollo, can you help? And Apollo says, yes, because he hates the Greeks and he curses the Greeks. He brings a plague on them. So Apollo is the god of the sun, but he's also the god of plague. So Achilles shows up, and Achilles is the best of the Greeks. He's Aristos Achaion. He's half god, and he consults a priest. And the priest is like, yeah, the plague is Agamemnon's fault. He really pissed off Apollo. And so Achilles walks over to Apollo. Nope. And so Achilles walks over to Agamemnon and says, give the girl back. And this makes Agamemnon very angry. But he sees the rationale. So he says, fine, I'll give the girl back. But in return, I'm taking Achilles' war prize, again a human being, named Briseis. That's with a B, Briseis. Not Homer. Someone really said, there's only two main female characters in this story. I'm going to name them the same name with one letter difference. Oh, gosh. Sounds right. Yeah. This makes Achilles very angry. He feels hurt. He can't believe that this dumb old general is trying to strip him of his war prize, a human being. And so he says... I will not fight, and nor will my men, the Myrmidons. So he's the prince of Thia, and he has all of these men who he's like the mini general of. I don't know anything about military ranks, <laughs> but he's the mini general of all of the, of the Myrmidons. And he says, my men aren't fighting, and neither am I. And then a lot of other stuff happens. Nothing's really that important, but it's all very fun. The only really important thing is that at one point or another, almost everyone involved in the story just really wants the war to be over. It's been going on for nine years. It's over this one person and nobody has even like met Helen. They just don't care. But one of their patron god or goddesses will then come down and whisper in their ear and like instill in them the desire to fight again. And this happens to an extreme one day when Zeus, deciding to be chaos, goes to each general. So he goes to Agamemnon, the general of the Greeks, and Hector, the general of the Trojans. And he tells them that they are destined to win the war that very day. Neither of them do, but he Uh doesn't because he wants to. (laughs) So the gods take sides in this conflict. And to remember it, I say the A's go with the Trojans. So this is Apollo, Artemis, Ares, and Aphrodite. With This is of the Pantheon, so there's going to be 11 because Zeus just loves chaos, so he's not choosing a side. With the Greeks is Hera, Athena, Poseidon, Hermes, and Hephaestus. Because Hephaestus is just angry at Aphrodite all the time, so he had to take the other side. That's fair. As a side note about about their relationship. (laughs) Yeah, poor man. So Achilles is very, very angry, and he's very hurt. And as a side note, he's prophesied to die in this war. So he knows that he's never going to make it out of this, and he's just really angry. And so he goes to his mother, Thetis, who's a lesser god. She's a sea nymph. And he asks her to ask Zeus to make it so that the Greeks cannot win. And Zeus loves chaos. We've been over that. And so he says, yeah, of course I'm going to do that. And the Greeks begin to lose spectacularly. So much so that they begin to the Trojans begin to encroach onto Greek space. And this is really important because how did the Greeks get to Troy? Guesses? They walked there. A thousand ships. Yeah, the ships. A thousand eh? ships. 
Bunch of if ships. the Trojans get to the camps and burn the ships, there is no point because the Greeks will never make it home. <laughs> they don't really understand that there's land that they could walk around, right? They don't. They don't know that. <laughs> Walking's for the weak. <laughs> Walking's for the week. I built a ship. It would ship. also probably take them like a hundred years. So <laughs> I actually have no idea how long it would take them. Anyway. Google Maps is like while. four days. <laughs> Still. So long. Yeah, it actually might not be that long. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. They they don't know that they can walk. And they're like, if the ship's burned down, we might as well all just kill ourselves. Like, there's no point. So Nestor, who we talked about earlier, goes to Patroclus. And if you think... Patroclus's name is pronounced Patroclus. You can just end the podcast here. That's all. I have very, very strong opinions about this. His name is Patroclus. Anyway, <laughs> he's the right-hand man of Achilles, and he is the best of the Myrmidons. So Achilles, being the best of the Greeks, can't also be the best of his own fighters. Don't ask why. And Patroclus is the best of his fighters. And Nestor's like, please, please, Patroclus, like, convince Achilles to fight. And then Patroclus starts crying and he goes to Achilles and Achilles is like, why are you crying? By the way, this, any of the dialogue I've inserted in here is not the actual dialogue. I just need to make that clear. <laughs> and it was Achilles, Homer's notes there. Yeah. It, <laughs> quote, Footnote. Why are you crying? <laughs> it's pretty close. It's something like, I, I'm not going to attempt to pull why it Why dost thou weep salty tears? <laughs> salty tears. <laughs> um and so patroclus begs achilles to send the myrmidons and achilles is like okay fine but i'm not gonna go because my honor's at stake you can take the myrmidons and go and he does this so much that he actually puts patroclus into his own armor so achilles dons armors made by hephaestus the blacksmith of the gods and achilles gives it to patroclus to use in battle and this makes apollo very angry Apollo is not pleased with this. And so he sends a little gust of wind in the middle of the battle, and he strips Patroclus of his armor, or Achilles' armor in this case. It just knocks it off? Yeah, he just knocks all... So he's, like, basically naked on the battlefield, and he's oh. like, um, what? So embarrassing. And then Hector stabs him and kills him. Yeah. I mean, ha, huh, but I love Patroclus as a side note. Anyway, then Achilles loses his mind, because as per mentioned, they're, like, good friends slash maybe something else we'll talk about later and he goes for blood and he goes and he automatically kills Hector but he's like killing Hector isn't enough justice you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna tie Hector up I'm gonna drag him behind my chariot and I'm gonna take his little body and it's gonna I'm demonstrating bouncing motions in the sand in the sand for like it's almost two weeks I think and he just takes it yeah 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 he's like He's, like, not happy oh with God. what happened. Just in the Ew. same circle. Just like. Yes. Yeah, no, it's literally in a circle around Patroclus's grave. So, cheers. Um, it's also around the, the city for a bit. And then he's like, eh, whatever. And he goes back to Patroclus's grave. Now, Apollo has blessed the body so that it doesn't change. This makes Achilles even angrier, as a side note, because his body remains preserved oh. despite this. And then Zeus is like, okay, this needs to stop. So he sends, and I, I think it's Hermes, but it could, Hermes is the messenger god, so that's who I'm, I'm assuming it is, to guide Priam, Hector's father, the king of Troy, to Achilles' tent. And he shows up, and Achilles is like, what are you doing here? I don't like this. 
and I think um, Priam says something like, I've done what no other man has done before, like kiss the hands of my son's murderer or something dramatic like that, and begs for Hector's body back. And Achilles says, okay, fine, you can have it back. And the story ends with Priam returning into the walls of Troy with Hector's preserved body and the promise of 12 days of peace for a mourning period for Hector and Patroclus, kind of. Which is like, the war's not over. It, we started in the middle of the war and we ended in the middle of the war. That's the whole yeah. thing. That's it. Wow. And that, that's the whole thing. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I know. So based on that, and I guess this is also going to be a, a pretty good gauge of how good my, my summary was. Do you think you could guess what the main message or the main takeaway of the Iliad is supposed to be? There's kind of three if you want to think about it in your brain. I feel like for me what's coming up is the Gandhi quote that's like an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like there you know, there is no winning if you're gonna just be I don't know if it's just about necessarily killing people, but it was just like everyone's too passionate and too hot headed and it just doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. You need to let some blood out. Mm, yeah. Let some blood out. Don't let anyone borrow your armor. <laughs> right? I think um. maybe revenge is never the answer. Mm-hmm. Like you'll never yeah. be satisfied by it. Yeah. I mean, this is probably too idealistic, but it feels like a part of the message is that, like, war is for a bunch of idiots. Like, it's just, it, war is just controlled by people who like chaos and will take advantage of you. So if you're yeah. wise enough, you won't participate in war because it just leads to death and sadness. It's the death and sadness. Yeah. That sounds like the best one, Patrick. Boom. It, it, and I mean, it's really close. I could even say that that's probably one of the takeaways. So basically, the Iliad it. is about... I know, look at you go. <laughs> the Iliad is about a conflict between a soldier and his commanding officer, right? It's about rage, it's about revenge, and it's about return. It's also about a soldier who's fighting in a war that he thinks is pointless and that he knows he's going to die in. And that's not unique to Achilles, it's not unique to the Iliad, and it's certainly not unique to ancient Greece. It's actually a thread that ties through most wars. As Patrick said, wars for suckers. Or I was paraphrasing you, I can't remember what you said. No, wars that's for suckers is great, that's great. Wars for suckers. Wars for suckers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also about the meddling of the gods. That idea, as Patrick also said, this like, you don't control the forces of war. And it's about rage. So we can assume that the gods meddle in all of the epic cycle because they love to meddle. It's their favorite pastime. Mm -hmm. But their choices are really important, right? They play with human lives for entertainment, and they make decisions based on only their own desires. Sometimes they really want to save people who are their blood, right? So a lot of the gods have sons and daughters involved in this conflict, and they really want to save those people. But otherwise, they're just like having a good time, right? But it's also about rage. For 23 and a half of the 24 chapters of the Iliad, Achilles is just pissed off. He is so angry. Even when he's grieving, he's just angry. And it's only in the very last chapter, really the very last half of the very last chapter, that he chooses kindness. And so this duality, this ability to be both cruel and kind, is really the main takeaway from the Iliad. And we know this because we see it so much in art. The moment in which Priam comes to Achilles and begs for the body is depicted everywhere. There are very famous sarcophagi of it. There are famous like 
pottery of it. There's even some wall paintings of it in Pompeii. And so it's this idea that the the hero of the story can see the error in his ways and the harm that he's caused and not only give the body back, but also extend the gesture and give a period of mourning for specifically the person he's killed, but also generally for the harm that the war has caused. So we're going to look at the retellings in just a minute. But first, there are kind of two things that you might want to know about, one of them being the Trojan horse. Um, because they don't show up in the Iliad, and this really confuses people. And that's the start and end of the war. So, the war starts not with the abduction of Helen, if you ask some scholars. If you ask some scholars, they'll be like, clearly it's the abduction of Helen, like anything before that is irrelevant. But I am part of the camp that would argue that the start of the war actually starts, like, I want to say it's like five, maybe even ten years before Helen is abducted at a wedding and it doesn't really matter who the wedding is for but there are gods present at the wedding and there are mortals present at the wedding and so three goddesses turn to Paris and Paris at this point in time is either a prince of Troy or for some people he's a shepherd who is the prince of Troy in disguise either way it's Paris and the three goddesses turn to him and they say which one of us is the fairest and he's like, I'm a mortal. Like, why would I be the person to do this? I don't want to do this. And they're like, they roll their eyes because mortals, how annoying. And so they each promise him something. Hera promises him lordship over Asia. Like, literally all of Asia. Cheers. Great. <laughs> Athena offers him victory in battle. That makes sense. Athena is a, a god of cunning. What is, what's the word? Wisdom. Strategy, wisdom. Wisdom. Strategy, wisdom, yes. Athena's the god of a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> and Aphrodite promises him the most beautiful woman in the world. Can you guess which one he chooses? Hmm. Something mm. for satisfaction. D- definitely Asia. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The end. The end. He chooses Asia and, and none of this happens. <laughs> Iconic. Um... So, yeah, he chooses Aphrodite. He gives her the golden apple, which is what they're fighting over. Nobody really knows where it comes from. It just comes from the sky. And that's that. And they kind of dust their hands off. And Hera, one of my favorite things, I found this in my notes. So I was looking through my notes. I took a Greek myth course in um, undergrad. And I was looking through my notes on the Trojan War. And I have a note that says, Hera could never forgive Troy for spawning Paris. And it's just my favorite note. That's why she sides with the Greeks, because she's, like, angry that she wasn't given the title of the fairest of them all. Alice Snow White, but anyway. And so an undetermined amount of time later, either Paris is on a trip to Sparta, and he steals Helen himself. Or some scholars have argued that Aphrodite just shows up in Sparta, picks Helen up, and just transports her to Troy. And I like this option better for two reasons um why would a woman ever leave her husband for just some man named paris like people are like oh it's love i'm like this woman knows that that's only gonna cause bad things pretty sure she also has kids like leaving your kids um okay girl um but the other thing is she hates paris anytime they have to interact in the iliad she's like please don't take me there i don't want to go see him aphrodite's like can you can you come see alexandros which is paris's real name don't ask me why he's also called Paris. Those are not names that interact. Oh. And 
Helena is like, I don't want to. So take take that with a grain of salt. Whether or not you blame Helen for starting the war, that's your business. Uh. But the judgment of Paris is a pretty important thing, and it's going to come up in some of the retellings. And then I also want to talk about the Trojan horse. Um, what do you guys know about the Trojan horse? Anything? It's a big wooden horse. People nice. were put inside it, like Greeks were inside it. It was presented as a yeah. gift to the Trojans to end the war or something. Mm-hmm. They take it mm-hmm. in, the Greeks come out and fuck shit up. They go to sleep. Amazing description. Thank you. <laughs> right, isn't it they come out at nighttime too and they just slit their throats? So they, nice. there was really no battle. Anything to add, Liz? No. Isn't it burned? There's something with fire. Like, isn't it burned later or something? Yeah, the whole, like, city of Troy is just set up ablaze, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, basically kind of true. Odysseus comes up with this idea. Because Odysseus, as a character, I haven't brought up Odysseus because as much as I love him, he's not totally relevant to this story. But he's uh, the mastermind of the Greek army. He's not the general, but he, his patron god, Athena of strategy, and she loves him because he like comes up with the most crazy schemes and then goes through with them because he like loves to just mess things up. That's awesome. And so, yeah, he's, this is why he's the best character. His characterization is just two things. Let's trick someone. And can I go home to my wife? (laughs) Like an icon. (laughs) Let's trick someone. Can I go home to my wife? Like truly iconic. He's like, okay, Love that I man. messed it up. I'm going home now. That, that it's literally like he's like, let's do this. Yeah, he's like, I want to go home to Penelope, so let's just uh, give him a horse. <laughs> so the idea is they're going to pretend to leave. The Greeks are just going to disappear one one morning. The Trojans are going to wake up, and there won't be a Greek on the beach, but in their place there will be a giant wooden horse. And some stories, some retellings of this will say that there is also like a spy who's left on the beach, like tied to the Trojan horse as a, like a treasonous person. He's, you know, condemned to die there. And this is like to try and egg the Trojans into taking the horse. But the idea of the horse wasn't a gift so much as it wasn't a gift to the Trojans. It was a gift to Poseidon. And the idea was we need to offer something to Poseidon to bless our journey back. And so they created this giant horse to be like, thank you for helping us in this war. Now we go home. That's why a horse makes sense. It, that makes, okay, cool. Yeah. Because Poseidon yeah. and horses or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is, so the Trojans all walk to the beach. They're like, what is this? If the spy's there, he's like, it's an offering to Poseidon. And a priest of Apollo says, don't take this. It's a trap. And then immediately a bunch of snakes come out of the water and kill that man. <laughs> and the Trojans are like, that's a sign. That's a sign that we need to take the horse. Honestly, yeah. That's sound it's logic. Like literally the opposite, too. That's so yeah. funny. <laughs> so, yeah, they take the horse. They bring it on in. And they put it into, like, the center of their place. Whatever you call that. Mm-hmm. Town square, maybe. And they leave it there and they go to have a like little party and then they go to bed. And then a couple Greeks sneak out of the horse and go and open the gates of Troy. And this is really important. The gates of Troy are like impossible to get through. You can't get over the walls. They're so tall. Troy 6, for example, had 18 foot walls. So we like know that they were really tall and like impossible to get through. And then all the Greeks come in through the doors and slit everyone's throat and kill them and do a lot of other horrifying things, including... A lot of rape. Oh. And 
Yeah. And then they take all the women prisoner and they leave. And they go home for realties. Including uh, our boy Odysseus, who then kind of goes insane. But for that, for the Iliad, he's just a, he's a G. And then he's no longer a G in the Odyssey. But it's fine. <laughs> Not relevant. Um, so yeah, like, it's a ending that was probably in the Iliad Persis. And for the most part, retellings do it quite well. We'll talk about that. But there's like a kind of folklore about it being like a gift for the Trojans. And for the most part, people don't think it was because why would you accept a gift from the people you just spent a decade fighting without like any question? feels a little weird. Makes sense. Okay. Also, as if the whole army wasn't in the horse. That's what we've been told the whole time. Yeah. But that also makes sense. It's like a clown car. Yeah. Like all the That'd be there. a huge horse. Mm-hmm. And it would be like, how is the wood sustaining all of these bodies? Yeah. 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 Also, like carrying that back? Are you kidding? Like pulling the horse back with all those? <laughs> yeah. be a like, why heavy is it so heavy? <laughs> what I don't get is like, were they building it like on the beach and they were like, pay no attention to the giant horse? <laughs> like, how did you get away with that? I don't know, man. Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> or it's did it question. just like appear? You know? Yeah, I, don't I think know. Athena just maybe divine help. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Athena maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just love okay. the idea that it's like snakes. It's like this guy's like, uh, this is, this is, we shouldn't trust it. And then the snakes come yeah. and kill him. And someone's like, you know, he's right, but I don't want that to happen. So. Yeah. yeah, but did you see how cool the horse was? No, we're taking yeah, this. Right. Come on. We want the horsey. Give us the horsey. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're interested in, in that story, it comes up in the Aeneid, which is why we know it. And also there's a great sculpture group called Laquan, which is the priest's name, and his sons, which shows them being um, killed by the snakes. And one day we might ta- talk about that piece because there might be a little mystery around that piece. Oh, my God. It might not be what it says it is, <gasps> but that's a story for a different time. Oh, that's mm-hmm. sick. <laughs> cool. Yeah, but it's a, it's a lovely piece. Cool. All right. I hope you enjoyed part one of our look at the Iliad. We talked about constructions of history. I gave you that lovely little summary. And next time, we're going to look at retellings of the Iliad. I'm going to rate them. I'm going to talk about what I love, talk about what I hate. Maybe go off on a really weird tangent. Who knows? We'll find out. See you next time. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabek, Haudenosaunee, Lanapuak, and Attawandaran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Somber Treaties of 1796 and the Dish with One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be home to First Nation peoples, Métis people, and Inuit people who we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingan, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Matthias Miller.